0: We thank you, Lord, that you are alive, that you've made us living stones with you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you and to learn this morning. Please open our hearts and minds, speak through all of us, and speak through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, take your seats, get your Bibles out. This will be more of a, of, a, of a teaching time than a sermon time, so we're going to get a bit of a workout. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at an elevated day. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. And all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he has done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Well in verse 3 we discover that God sanctified the seventh day. Now what does that mean that he sanctified the seventh day? And by the way the seventh day was what day? We call it Saturday, okay? This is why there's football on Saturday, right? Uh, This is a word holy, sanctified is the word holy, and it it comes from a root root word that really means to separate. But perhaps a better understanding would be to elevate. This is why I put it up here. So what we're seeing here is a separation that elevates. So God set apart the seventh day to elevate it, to set it apart from the other six days. And he gives us three reasons why he sanctified or elevated the seventh day. Real quickly, we go through these. Verse one is its completion. It says, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. It's a special day because it signals that God's entire creation is finished. It is done. So completion is the first point this is a verb that describes it. Number two, rest. Why did he sanctify the seventh day? Well, for rest. So verse two tells us, he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And also, he repeats it in verse three. He rested from all his work which God had created and made. And let me be very clear here that this does not imply that God needed rest okay? The Lord does not grow weary, Isaiah forty twenty eight. Now, he rested only in a sense that he ceased from his work. This was a rest, what we know of, is a rest of satisfaction. He looked back on the previous six days of work, and what did he see? It was not only good, it was also Very good. So he was satisfied in his work. And you've probably done that before. You've completed some task, you're done, you look back on it, and there's a sense of satisfaction, right? So that's what that means. His creation was perfect, and he was satisfied. Now, just a side note, God was done working, and God would not go back to work again until when? Genesis 3. And this is where he began his work of doing two things redemption and preservation. By redemption, I mean Adam and Eve fell into sin, and what was the first work that God did? He had to make garments of skin for them. That was a symbol for the covering of their sin. That's redemption, a picture of redemption. Now, by preservation, I mean God had to preserve or uphold his creation, as Hebrews 1 says. Because his creation is now subject to decay. You see, it wasn't subject to decay before that. so he has to preserve it. This is his work he is doing even now. He is still preserving it. It's being upheld. It didn't need to be upheld prior to that. It's an FYI. The third reason why he sanctified his blessing, then God blessed the seventh day. This is a day to be elevated above all other days as a memorial to remember the glory of God's perfection in creation. And so every seventh day from here on out would be a reminder that God in six days created the universe in perfection. If you ever wonder why we operate calendars all over the world in in sevens, here's your answer. Genesis 2. But there's something else that stands out here in our minds when we read these three verses, and it is this. There is nothing here about man resting and worshiping, is there? Do you ever think about that? Well, why? Because at this point in time, man was still without sin, man was perfect in every sense, spiritually and physically. There was no depletion of his energies when he was tending to the garden of God. He is living in a paradise with no labor or sweat or lost energy. So there was no need to have a day of rest for man. Did you know that? And this day is simply confined completely for God to be a special memorial to his creation and its original perfection. We are to remember that. But there is much confusion regarding observing the Sabbath. There are some churches that still do observe the Sabbath. Okay? There are some people that as well think they don't necessarily know they don't have to observe the Sabbath, but they do try to take an actual day where they don't do actually anything. So really what I want us to get from this sermon as we get past this first part here is strive this morning to understand the Sabbath, which is why we're going to do a little bit more of a teaching time. And the first thing I want you to understand is it is a sign. It is a sign. Now I said, if you ever wondered why the Western world observes a five-day work week, we have weeks and sevens, but we only have a five-day work week. That's the Western world. You ever wonder why? Why not a six-day work week for you workaholics that love that? One reason was the influence of Christianity. Saturday was a day to enjoy the creation as a perpetual witness to God as creator. That's Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So you take Saturday to enjoy that day. You cease from working and you enjoy the creation. Sunday, on the other hand, is a perpetual witness to God as redeemer. That is Genesis 3 and on because God God now has to redeem us. And so the next time you read about a Sabbath... In the Bible is in Exodus 16. Now keep in mind, anyone want to guess how many years have passed by since the creation of Adam to Exodus 16? 2,500 years passed between Adam and Moses. That means in 2,500 years, nobody observed a Sabbath of rest or worship. It means Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc., They never observed the Sabbath. In the 16th chapter of Exodus, when God feeds the people manna from heaven as they wander in the wilderness, is where we find the Sabbath mentioned again. Now, do you guys remember that story? The people are in the wilderness wandering, and they're hungry, and they're complaining, so what does God provide for them? The quail and the, the manna, the bread, that comes down from heaven on the ground, it's like flakes and so on and so forth. So the manna comes every day except what day? The Sabbath day. The day before the Sabbath, they get enough for two days. So which day would they be gathering enough for two days? Friday. And that would be from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown was the Sabbath day, which we would call Saturday. So they get enough for two days so they don't have to work on the Sabbath day. Now what we're seeing here is God's preparing the people of Israel for what is to come next in Exodus 20. That's the Ten Commandments. And this is the first time any such laws have been given by God. Isn't that amazing? Over 2,500 years have passed. He's given no laws. And the first laws come in the form of the Ten Commandments. And in the fourth commandment, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you and your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your soldier who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is very important to understand that the Sabbath was not instituted for man in Genesis. Okay? That's the first thing you should remember. It was instituted officially in Exodus, in the law of Moses. Now read more about it in Exodus 31, about the Sabbath. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying this, and this is what the key is, verse 13. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign. So the Sabbath is always a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. For the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Now verse 17, another key verse. It is a sign. Again. So what is the Sabbath? A sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, but in the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So here we find that the Sabbath is a sign And then what do signs do? They point to something else. Let me explain. Now, we'll test your Bible knowledge here. When God made a covenant with Noah, he promised Noah that he would never destroy the world again with water. What was the sign of the covenant with Noah? A rainbow. The rainbow. Whenever we see a rainbow, we are, to, I'm not going to say it, we are reminded that God will never destroy the earth with a flood of water. That's what I see. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he designated a sign. And what was the sign of the covenant with Abraham? Remember this? Circumcision. Circumcision was a sign, the sign of circumcision. In Exodus 20, You have God making a covenant with Moses, and the sign of the covenant is the Sabbath. So you have the rainbow as a sign, circumcision as a sign, and Sabbath as a sign. And what we must understand about observing the Sabbath is this. It was just a sign. It was just a sign. If you observe the Sabbath without a heart of love and devotion to God, do you know what? It profited you nothing. Isaiah 1.13 says this, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. So if you observe the Sabbath with a wrong heart attitude, it didn't profit you anything. Now the question is, what was the sign for? What did it ultimately point to? Well, the Sabbath was a reminder of the perfection of God's creation. That that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now watch this. And it was to remind the people of Israel that the paradise of God, which had been forfeited by sin, could only be regained again by a righteous redeemer. It was a reminder of a paradise that was lost but could be regained through righteousness by faith. The people of Israel were taught, and you can read this over and over in the Old Testament, that if they obeyed God's law, which included observing the Sabbath, they would learn that righteous behavior would restore a taste of Eden's paradise. You with me so far? A taste of Eden's paradise. That is, that they would experience blessing. So every Sabbath that went by, every seventh day of the week, they were reminded of, one, a perfect creation, and number two, a paradise of God that had been forfeited by sin. It could only be regained through a righteous Redeemer. So what they were to do was every seventh day of the week, they were to consider the importance of obeying the Ten Commandments and examining their own lives, looking at how they were measuring up against the law of God. And when they fell short, or when they sinned, they had to respond in repentance. And so the first seventh day in Genesis was to produce gratitude for the wonder of God's creation. The institution of the Sabbath in Exodus was to produce repentance for sin. Namely, the forfeiture of a lost paradise. And so now we see that the Sabbath took on a new meaning beyond something God created in Exodus. It serves as a reminder that the creation of God, including man, which was originally perfect, is now stained by sin. And if all of creation is stained by sin, this is why, as Paul wrote, even the creation groans. Groans. Because the Sabbath was always a sign of two things. Again, what? God's original perfect creation and our need for our Savior, our righteous Redeemer, to restore the lost paradise. You with me so far? Okay. Now let's talk about a new covenant. When we come to the time of Jesus, everything changed. Jesus came to bring an end to Judaism. Judaism with all of its rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices and the temple, and yes, included in all of that was the end to the observance of the Sabbath. He ushered in a new covenant. We begin to understand this by watching Jesus and how he treated the Sabbath. So I want us to look at how Jesus treated the Sabbath, but before I do, I want you to give you some historical background information. I want you to see how fanatical the Pharisees were about the Sabbath. Now in the Talmud, which is not the scripture, there are extra biblical writings by the the Jews, there are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. Here is just one example. And please don't laugh you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet or 1,999 steps. If you take the 2,000th step, you violated the Sabbath. And I remind you that the Sabbath was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And the only way that you can go further than that is if you put some food 1,999 steps away on Friday before the Sabbath. And once you got to the food, you'll get another 1,999 steps, either to go further or to come back. Now, isn't that ridiculous? Whenever there were narrow streets, according to the Talmud, you could lay a piece of wood or a piece of rope over the entrance to the street between the dwellings on each side. So I think in Europe, those very thin roads, you know, only a small car can get through there. Well, they would place a piece of wood or a rope over that, hanging from each side. Why? Well, this would make the entrance like the entrance of a house. So you could go another 1,999 steps, or 3,000 feet. Now, so powerful and influential were the Pharisees in their Sabbath laws that even their theological enemies and adversaries, and this was the Sadducees. In other words, for today, the conservative Pharisees had such influence that they even controlled the liberal Sadducees when it came to Sabbath laws. They yielded the Sadducees to the Pharisees on the Sabbath issues. And so literally everybody was complied with the forced restraints of the oppressive Sabbath laws of the Pharisees. Now as a result, as you might imagine, Sabbath-keeping legalism became the defining religious virtue in Israel. If you were righteous and holy, you observed the Sabbath. And you also looked for other people in case they violated the Sabbath, and man did you persecute them. Now in John chapter five, and turn your Bibles there to John chapter five, This is the first confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. This is a story of the healing at Bethesda of a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And just so you don't, if you don't remember the story, this is what it is. And this man would lay by the pool of water, waiting for it to be stirred up, in hopes that he would be the first to dip in the water and would be healed. That was a superstition at the time. Well, Jesus comes along. He heals him, and only him, by the way. He tells him to do this, to pick up his pallet and walk. Now, the Pharisees see him carrying his pallet. They accuse him of, this man, of violating the Sabbath. And they question to find out, well, why would you even do such a thing? And the man tells them he was told to do it by Jesus. And look at verse 16. This is what they did. And remember, this is the first time. Jesus violated the Sabbath. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things in the Sabbath. Let's take this into context here. What did he do in the Sabbath? He healed a man. And they could not find in their heart to rejoice in that healing for this man. What I love is Jesus' response in verse 17. Look at this. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Let me rephrase that for you in what he's saying in context here. So in other words, Jesus says this. God the Father and I decide what to do in the Sabbath. You don't. To put that into some perspective, it would be you walking out In a a gay parade, in pronouncing, you don't decide what marriage is. God, my father, and I do. Okay? Does that make sense? Help you relate to that? That was the environment he was living in, and he is saying that. So Jesus is not backing down at all. In fact, why did Jesus heal that one man? Because he only does what his father's doing, and what did his father want him to do in that day? Heal that man. And what would that result in? Persecution. But he's going after them in the Sabbath laws. Well, that was an outrage, beyond outrageous to them, because look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more now to what? To kill him, because he violated the Sabbath law, and he healed a man. Well, after that short festival visit to Jerusalem, Jesus returns to Galilee. This takes us to Mark chapter 2. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Now, we know that in our world, news travels fast just like that. Well, the same thing happened in Jesus this time. News travels fast. And what happened on that Sabbath in Jerusalem had traveled back with him as he's going to, to confront the same issue in Galilee. Now mind you, one week later, on which day? The Sabbath day. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. You're probably familiar with this story. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, what the disciples were doing was allowed under the law. Deuteronomy 23, 25. The soldier walks through your fields. What are they able to do? And it was for the, 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 the widow and the orphan. They could glean, not cut it down and steal from you, but just glean of that to, to provide for them. It was one way God's provided for people. But not according to the Talmud. You couldn't do that. And oh, by the way, it says that the Pharisees were following Jesus on what day? Sabbath. They didn't make an issue about him walking beyond 1,999 steps. They too were breaking the Sabbath, for surely they walked 1,999 steps beyond that. Now look at verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read that what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. He also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus' response is classic. Let me explain real briefly here. He reminds him of something far worse. The time when David and his companions ate the consecrated bread and that was unlawful. But you see, any reasonable and compassionate person would provide food for the hungry on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was what? Originally was made for rest and blessing and joy and mercy and compassion in the meeting of needs. There wouldn't be a better day in the week to provide food on than on the Sabbath. Then he gives them another example of something far worse that David and his companions did by eating the consecrated bread. Bread. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. It's the same story, just adds a little bit more to this. Matthew chapter 12 starting in verse 5. I want you to get the picture. They are following Jesus. They're harassing him. They are they're looking for fault. Okay? Now watch this. Matthew 12, verse 5. He will appear to pick up the conversation. Or have you not read, excuse me, in the law, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Verse 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in effect, he says in verses 5 and 6, you all make a big issue out of not working on the Sabbath. Guess what? While you're not working, all the priests are working by carrying out all the offerings and the sacrifices, thus breaking the Sabbath. Now, isn't that great? This story is to serve as a reminder, the Sabbath laws are simply symbolic. A sign pointing to their need to, yes, enjoy the wonder of creation, but what else? Repent. Repent. Look for a righteous redeemer to regain a lost paradise. And see, that's exactly what the next verse says. Look at verse 8. Something greater than the temple is here. Well, who? Well, Jesus says, how is he greater than the temple? He's the righteous redeemer who will bring back the lost paradise. You see that? So finally, in verse 8, he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath meaning he can do anything he wants with the Sabbath. He can create in the beginning the Sabbath. He can institute the Sabbath in Exodus with all its restrictions, and he can set it aside by instituting a new covenant, and it's exactly what he did because he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now go back to Mark chapter 2. I know I'm giving you a workout this morning, but that's okay. I want to explain to you another thing about the Sabbath. It's in verse 27 where Jesus says this, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Sabbath was intended to remind man what? The perfection of God's original creation, which should result in praise and worship of God. It also reminded man of what? The lost paradise of God. Now, the paradise of God or the Garden of Eden, again, there was no labor or sweat or lost energy man would be at rest but paradise had been forfeited by sin and could only be regained again by a righteous redeemer through faith and so the sabbath served as a reminder of the need for redemption to restore man to the paradise where he could finally find rest and god gives us one day a week a weekly reminder to stop working and worship god for the perfection of his creation and to give us rest a taste of the future rest that awaits in the regained paradise for those and only those who have been redeemed. So how did Jesus treat the Sabbath? Answer simple, any way he wanted to. He is Lord of the Sabbath. But it had been so ingrained into people because of the Pharisees that the Father had to have him time after time after time violate the Sabbath, But a new time had come. The old covenant had gone. Now was the ushering of a new covenant. Now, the new covenant was to result in this. Such a great thing. Rest. Rest. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I'll explain to you, rest. Hebrews chapter 3. You guys, with me so far? Okay. What's the two purposes of Sabbath? Number one, what is it? You're remembering; it's a memorial to God's perfect creation. What's the second purpose of, of Sabbath? Need a righteous redeemer to regain the lost paradise. Okay. Rest Hebrews three verse seven. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried Me by testing Me and saw My works for forty years. Verse ten. Therefore, I was angry with this generation; said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know My ways. As I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Now the writer of Hebrews is reminding his audience of the history of Israel. Wandering in the desert. They've gone out of Egypt, they've gone through the Red Sea, and they're in that desert in the wilderness, wandering around. And they're wandering around now for an additional 40 years. Well, why? Because of their disobedience. Remember the 12 spies that were sent out? Two came back and said, We can do this. And who were those two people? Two men? Caleb and Joshua. The other 10 said, We can't do it. Now, I remind you, what are these people seeing God do? Water from rock, manna. What else? Pride of the Red Sea. How about those 10 plagues? Yeah, they were enriched as well as they left, so God had to provide for them. And so that God had enough of that generation. And their punishment was this You're eventually going to die, and while you're waiting to die, this generation, I'm not going to allow you to rest. They could not rest. And the rest that they were seeking was found in the promised land. But we know that God's true rest doesn't come through Moses or Joshua. It only comes through Jesus Christ. And while Joshua led the nation of Israel into the land of their promised rest, and by the way, what kind of rest was it? They went into the, a land that had already had what prepared for them? Homes? The, the, the fields were plowed, everything. They would just overtake all of that and step right in. But that was nothing more than a temporary earthly rest. Here's the key. A mere shadow of the final, ultimate heavenly rest. Look at verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what was their disobedience? Well, look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. And to whom did he swear that they could not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Their disobedience was unbelief. They did not believe God could drive out the people who possessed the promised land. Now, for us, the kind of rest that is important is the salvation rest that comes by faith in God. This is the believer's Rest, or true rest, look at Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 3. So in light of that, he says, therefore, watch this, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, Because it was not, watch this, united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed entered that rest. We're not talking about an actual physical rest. We're talking about a spiritual rest. And how do we enter that rest? Through faith. Okay? So you need to be afraid if you don't believe. Because if you don't believe, you will never experience the true rest. Now what you see here is unbelief... Forfeits rest. Just like in Hebrews, the rest that the New Testament writers focus on or are concerned about is not about Sabbath observance, taking an actual day off a week, but rather spiritual rest obtained by faith. So therefore, in the New Covenant, begin by Jesus, there is no more Sabbath observance. And this is made clear in Colossians 2, which is perhaps the most definitive statement on the passing of the covenant given to Moses. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. This is the ushering in of the new covenant. And this passage deals with two signs that I've already talked about. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is, of course, circumcision, and the sign of the of Mosaic covenant, which is Sabbath-keeping. Look at verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2. And in him, meaning in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We've had a more intensive surgery than the removal of flesh. Okay? We've had actual heart surgery, not a physical heart surgery, but our sinful nature, the flesh, was removed by Christ through his death and resurrection and our sins forgiven. So the sign of the Abrahamic covenant physical circumcision is gone because that was only a sign. And what does a sign do? It points to something greater. It's a symbol. And that sign, that covenant, the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, it had to go away. It had to die. Why? Because it could never save. Then we read about the Sabbath. Sabbath. Verse 16, 17. Therefore, watch this no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, in respect of festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they were still judging people on whether the food they ate, what they wore, and what days they observed. And here Paul is saying don't let anybody hold you to a weekly Sabbath observance. That was part of the old covenant that included the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all the rituals, everything. That is gone. It was only what? The shadow and not the substance. It was always a sign and it was just a shadow. It was never the substance. It was never the reality. It pointed to the one fact that God was the creator, that paradise had been lost, that you'd come under the merciless judgment of the law, that you needed to repent and come to God For righteous redemption. And that sign, that covenant with Moses, could never save. It could never provide. The Sabbath was only a sign or symbol pointing ultimately to a spiritual rest found exclusively in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, you no longer need the shadow, right? You have the real thing, you have the substance. You have the true rest. The Sabbath laws, taken them this way, were mere shadows of hope, a weekly reminder that there was a paradise to be regained. And it was done through righteousness by faith. So there could be rest from the endless struggle and the horrible burden of trying to earn your salvation. Ever tried to do that? That is exhausting, it is exhausting. Through Jesus we've entered into rest with none other than the creator himself. And so we stop all effort to earn our salvation, including observing the Sabbath, you see? Instead, we believe in God's offer of paradise through faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, that is why there is never a command in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. It's gone. Now, all ten commandments, by the way, other than the fourth commandment that we read, are all repeated in the New Testament, except the fourth commandment. The rest of the New Testament is concerned about each, or about is the rest. The rest that the New Testament is concerned about is the rest that comes to the soul from hearing and believing the good news preached. And that is just a magnificent New Testament promise and emphasis. So the Mosaic Sabbath, the symbol, the sign, was a dim reflection of the true rest. It is gone with one exception. We can go back to Genesis chapter two and we can be reminded, and I think we should, once a week at least, that every seventh day that goes by, it's an opportunity to acknowledge the perfection of God's original creation it is a marvel this world we live in even in its fallen state and we can bless that day and acknowledge God as our creator now that's did you get some understanding of the Sabbath now I'm going to tell you why you're here today it's what I call a new day a new day Just watch this. It says, now after the Sabbath, this is Matthew 28, verse 1, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. This is Matthew 28. Jesus died and been resurrected and so on. This is what we see. Look at this pattern here. On dawn of Sunday morning. You can look up here now if you're awake. I know I'm testing your guys' patience here. What do we read here? These two verses. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother James also the other woman worship Jesus. So that's he's resurrected. This is what we see. This is on Sunday. First Corinthians 15, We don't know much about this, but Jesus appeared to Peter. We don't know anything about this. But he does appear to Peter. On what day? What day? Say it. It's not the Sabbath. Sabbath is what? Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. What day are we talking about here? <laughs> right here, folks. It's Sunday. Sunday. Okay? Luke 24, 13. Two men on the road to Emmaus the same day hear a sermon and receive teaching from Jesus. So that's happening on Sunday. So we have Sunday morning, and now we're in almost afternoon here. Okay? Now watch this. John 20, 21. Jesus appeared to the 10th. This is wrong. This should be Sunday evening. Jesus appeared to the ten disciples and announces their great commission. As the Father has sent, me, I also send you. We find that. So it's evening. He appears. So he's appeared now where? To these women in the early morning hours. Okay? And they worship Jesus. He appears some point in the morning, we think, to, to Peter. In the afternoon, he's appearing to these two men on the road to Emmaus. And they hear a sermon, see the teaching. They don't recognize him until they what? Break bread and their eyes were opened. In the evening, he now goes and appears to the ten disciples and announces a great commission, in essence. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. What's the great commission? Therefore I urge you, or therefore what? Go to all the worlds. Okay? He also, at this meeting, promises the Holy Spirit. This is all on Sunday. This is a mistake. I I just put Sunday up here. You with me so far? Okay. A week later... The next Sunday, he saw 10 disciples that first Sunday. Judas is dead. One isn't there. Who isn't there? Thomas. A week later, he appears to Thomas and the disciples on a Sunday. On a Sunday, we know this, on Acts chapter 2. You can figure it out, do all the math and so on. The day of Pentecost, it's the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. We know what happened there. And the church is born that day. We also even see in Acts 27, way later on, Paul is preaching late in the night, and the guy falls asleep, and he re- heals them. So we have an evening worship service on what day? On a Sunday, okay? So Jesus makes, in summary, a post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene on a Sunday. He makes a post-resurrection appearance to Joanna and Mary the mother of James on a Sunday. I didn't have time to go through all this, but he does meet with Mary individually, Mary Magdalene. Then to the others, he makes a post-resurrection appearance to Peter on a Sunday. He makes a post-resurrection appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus on a Sunday. He makes two miraculous post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, both of them on a Sunday. It's also on a Sunday that he pledges to them that they'll receive the Holy Spirit to be empowered for ministry in the future, It's on a Sunday that that they know he is alive from the dead. It's on a Sunday that all the past, of his ministry, and his death comes to make sense. Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday, appeared on that Sunday in the morning, on that Sunday in the afternoon, on that Sunday in the evening. On that Sunday, they had their first worship service. You see that? He preached the first sermon on that Sunday, on the Sunday, they promised the Holy Spirit, empowered disciples, and birthed the church. And prior to that, Sunday had absolutely no significance. Did you know that? No significance. But from that day on, every Sunday took on a completely different meaning. Sunday became the new covenant resurrection day in the minds of the early church. And if the seventh day was designed by God for delighting in him as a creator and then having been corrupted by the fall, if the seventh day was also designed by God to put fear in the heart because of the violation of his holy law, here was another day to delight in God, not as a creator or a lawgiver, but as a savior. You see? So don't you see that if you memorialize the creation of the seventh day in Genesis 2, and if you memorialize the law on the seventh day, Exodus 20, you certainly want to memorialize the resurrection. And so a new day has come. And so what we've been doing, and every church is around the world is doing it on this day, this very day, and have been from this point on, doing what? You're here worshiping, getting a sermon, okay? Okay. Now we don't do an evening service anymore, but you also give, right? I didn't put that up there, but what you do, the first day of the week it says money and you give, you're offering. All this is happening on Sunday, which is now a new day. It's no longer Saturday is a special day, the seventh day, a day of rest. It is now what day? Sunday, a new day. So the new covenant has a day, it is Sunday. And it was so special that eventually it was no longer called Sunday. Did you know that? It was called the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, remember it says this? John said, on the Lord's Day, it was in the Spirit. So Sunday, today, and every Sunday is now, and has been for some time, the Lord's Day. And so what do we do on that day? It's a very simple application point. Celebrate the Lord's Day. That's what we do. This is the day that we have. So the Sabbath again was originally for what? It's three purposes now. What was the first one? You celebrate and memorialize God as your creator and for the perfect creation he has made. What's the second reason why people celebrated or observed the Sabbath? They celebrate God as a lawgiver to recognize how they've fallen short of their sin and the need of, of regaining a lost paradise through a righteous redeemer. Now, what do we celebrate? His resurrection. We celebrate his savior. And that is why we are here. That's the Sabbath. Did I clear anything up for you guys? I did for me because I had a lot of questions about this. And so from now on, just don't even use the word Sunday. Call it the Lord's Day. Amen? Okay. Father, thank you for this time as we go this morning and in our afternoon. May we celebrate this day with you and with a grateful heart for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Enjoy your celebratory day.